making another offensive. I don't want to say the C word, which is culmination, but by the way, but what's your opinion? My armchair general opinion. Okay, sorry. From what I have data and what's constantly being reported, as well as what friends on the ground tell us, there's two sectors where I would say that the Russians will constantly con- will continue to attack or can support an attack. And they have actually done so in recent days. The only sectors where they're really actually pushing. One is uh, the area uh, surrounding Bakhmut because they're hell-bent uh, in an individual attack. And that is not a general offensive or it's not even a regional offensive. It's just specific to that area. They want to take Bakhmut and uh, separate the road. Um, they're hell-bent on that and they've tried and they've been repelled. That uh, is reasonably far from any other supply lines. And if, uh, as Portland just highlighted it, if the Ukrainian armed forces manage to take out more uh, supply depot targets and maybe one or the other rail yard, um, then this will be over soon. So that's not momentum. This is something where they want to close out a segment or a sector which they haven't been able to take quite yet because they believe that they need to consolidate the line and achieve their target so that they can declare at least to their generals or respective to, to their high command that they've done part of their job. The other part is, uh, is the area in the north uh, surrounding Kupiansk. And this is where they actually need to hold the line and where individual counterattacks or massing of their troops, uh, they are still capable of because they can supply it directly from the north, from Belgorod and Kursk area. And which is where you would see troops if and when they move them now. They're supposed to have uh, two brigades which they forced out of Tatarstan, which is why the momentum with the political leadership in Tatarstan was so interesting in recent days. If they move uh, both the armored uh, brigade as well as the mechanized infantry uh, infantry BGG out of Tatarstan, as they have uh, indicated, um, and they move them in from the north and force them there to fight, um, then they have supplemented their troop, uh, their troops in the theater, and this will make it harder for the Ukrainians to take Kupiansk. But that Kupiansk is one of the most important features. As if you look at the map, and uh, I think Portland has a map at hand. I'm in the car. I apologize, but he can run you through how important it is. We discussed it. I don't know how many times already, but um, and it's not going. I mean, this is not going to be a Kerch Bridge kind of thingy. This is uh, Kupiansk is really, really bloody important, and it is. The, um, the area where the rail lines from the north down to the south supporting Izium and the whole Izium is a supporting attack. It's this is not Izium is not a main attack. It's a supporting attack, which has uh, um, constantly uh, tied up Ukrainian resources and has been there in order to support whatever kind of attack they can muster on Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, and putting pressure on the line. So if Kupiansk falls, respectively, the supply lines and the rail yards and the switch yards there are targeted, taken out and gone, then there is very little the, Ukra- the uh, Ukrainians shall expect from the Russians on that line and in Izium, because then the supply dries up. And uh, Portland, what do you want more than food and water? Ammunition, right? Bullets. Yep. So... Well, maybe if you want, if you have a minute and you can highlight how Kupiansk is located uh, with a map in hand, that would be great. Then I can continue driving safely. Yeah, it'll take me a moment to pull the map up. But in brief, of course. Um, it's, it's, the, um, it's, the, it's the most important place yeah. that you can actually cut the rail line. And if, if Russia cannot support the attack out of Izium, 
with logistics supplied by rail, that attack fails. That's basically it in a nutshell. So I, I have a map in front of me. So basically, there are two railway lines um, coming out of Russia into Ukraine that uh, go to Kupiansk. There's another railway line going there from Kharkiv that's useless because Ukraine controls Kharkiv. And then there's only one other line that doesn't go to Kupiansk that goes to Izium and that also goes from Kharkiv. So if Kupiansk is cut off, there is no more railways going to Izium that Russia controls. No railways, Portland, what does that mean for Russian logistics? I mean, in all practical purposes, if you cut Russia off from its rail lines, they they can support further offensive movement for about 160 kilometers. And that's it. Russia can only really operate with the kind of intensity that we've we've been observing um, within about 160 miles, sorry, 160 kilometers from a rail unit. Exactly. And Izium already is, well, about 160, uh, about 100 kilometers from the border, right? But there's no way that they can get nearly enough stuff to Izium to continue their offensive from Izium onto Slovyansk and from Otaris. And, well, might just be too much of a limiting uh, limiting factor if that, is, if that one uh, rail yard at Kupiansk is, uh, is destroyed. Notably, Kupiansk is on the Oskil River. And there's a couple of rail bridges there, you know, nowhere near the size of the Kerch Bridge. Uh, and if you can just cut off those, well, no more railways to use you. Oh, no. What would the Russians do with that rail? I guess we'll have to make long convoys. They would die. What Russia does without rail is die. Do, I saw it, some videos of a pretty extensive convoy uh, that was purported to be in response to all of these spontaneous ammunition depots exploding. Uh, it included both cargo trucks and uh, fuel carriers. So seems like it tracks. I don't know if it's been verified. Um, let's, uh, let's go to Luca. Luca had his hand up as the only one a bit ago. Luca? Yeah, unfortunately, there is an important update. I didn't know, but uh, from uh, they, they, they pointed me to it. So I started to read some Italian news. It seems that uh, the Draghi government is about to fall. So these, uh, I read quickly on the news, uh, uh, seems to be uh, the narrative on inflation and cost of living concerns. And uh, guess who brought forward that resolution? Of course, it's Salvini and his friends at the Movimento Cinque Stelle. So it's going to go back to the uh, president of the Republic desk uh, in the next few hours. And if it happens, it will happen literally like today. It's going to be super fast. Then the question is whether there is going, they're going to try to patch it up. But Salvini is calling for elections, uh, which in the middle of the current situation would be a total mess. Not unexpected, because like I said, this, is, this was all, always going to be the, the, the weak uh, uh, point of the coalition. Italy, especially Draghi, as I always say, was like the best that we could get in this situation. Um, you know, like given that it's Salvini, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we're, of course, in the conspiratorial ter- territory here, but it wouldn't surprise me that um, maybe there is this big counterattack happening and, uh, you know, putting seas in the shitters and he starts to make phone calls to his buddies around Europe to destabilize the political situation. I'll be reading more about it and uh, inform you by the end of the day. Mille grazie. And uh, will it change anything to the committed funding and uh, the uh, committed supplies of Italy, given the fact that they've already 
paid for them and uh, organized them. I mean, not in the short term, but like, don't forget that the Salvini is the guy that always said, you know, the, the war must stop. You know, it's costing, you know, the Italians too much money. I mean, maybe not directly in terms of the funding, but like the narrative is directly linked uh, into the motion of uh, uh, disproval. Basically, what happened was that um, uh, Draghi was trying to push forward um, a decree that was going to, uh, you know, uh, give uh, some support to the Italian families uh, uh, to, um, you know, uh, offset the cost of high uh, energy and gas. You know, they were going to give like 250 euros, you know, and then there were like a host of like measures. And then Salvini, um, you know, well, of course, this is something you want to do if you want to help the families, right? But like, uh, uh, instead, Salvini said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, you know, we need to take down the government. Cost of living is too high. So you kind of see where it's going. I don't think this will have an immediate impact, but the narrative is certainly like that one. So I don't think this is coincidental. And in a sense, it was a little bit like uh, uh, foreseen, you know. If uh, Italy, if Mario Draghi can convince his colleagues in Europe to lower the commitment of Italy to target two, uh, would that not allow him to lower taxes? Uh, sorry, I don't know how to answer that. I will have to do some research. It's a, it's, a budget, it's a budget question. At the moment, in his budget, he has a little hole because obviously his predecessors and the Cinque Stelle have created and dug in deeper into that hole. If that hole could be filled by Italy, um, uh, Italy's finances not being, shall we say, Italy's commitment being stretched for a longer period of time, would that not give him the possibility to, in the short term, lower taxes? Uh, yeah, potentially, yeah. Um, but the current crisis... Which, which is better than 250 euros in your pocket, right? No, for sure. But like the current crisis, I think... Um, it's more one of narrative, right? That's what's concerning, right? So there'll be like, there'll be, there'll be probably like 25% of the country that buy that narrative, uh, just because, you know, they are either pro Salvini or pro Movimento Cinque Stelle. And then the question is, what are the other people going to say? Are they going to say, um, oh, well, I mean, Draghi was trying to do the right thing? Or are they going to say, well, I mean, of course, you know, this, uh, you know, all this instability around the world is like, you know, costing families, right? And then they're basically going to turn a blind eye on the genocide. I don't know yet. I, but, but I think the problem is not, I mean, of course, it's factual because like, you know, everything is getting more expensive and Italy didn't have like a good economy going into it. But I think it feels to me when I read very quickly on the, on the newspaper, it feels to me that it's more of a political move. It's something around the narrative, which makes it even more concerning. Anyways, this will move very fast, so I might be able to check the news uh, later today and give a, a, an update. It's back to the president of the republic. He's either going to basically fire the government or he's going to try to reshuffle things. And then the question if he's reshuffle things is like, who is going to take uh, the place uh, of like Draghi, or if they can uh, they can figure out a way to create another Draghi government with a different uh, political support. We don't know. We'll need to see how it develops, but it doesn't look very great. One uh, last question, Luca, and thank you very much for doing this. It's much appreciated as always. But can the president constitutionally simply say, "Here, Draghi, you have the job again. Form your government." Yes, of course. You know the. The president can say that. However, the problem is, and I don't have the number of the two political parties that basically, um, you know, advocated to withdraw support from Draghi. But uh, if uh, um, the the M M5S and the and the and the Liga, so basically like the Salvini party and the other uh, funky party, um, pull their support, top of my head, I mean, if Bertrando was here, would probably confirm it. 
you're probably taking out um, north of like 30, let's say 35% of the votes. So there is still enough, um, you know, if you can pull in some opposition forces to go over, uh, you know, the 51%. But I just don't know, I just don't know what the composition of the, those forces would, would look like, whether they would ever be able to agree to support uh, a next Draghi government. Hard to tell. And Draghi is, is the kind of guy that plays hardball. He just said, oh, well, you know what? Like, I did my job. Uh, you guys don't support me anymore. Screw it. It becomes your problem. Um, and um, and uh, Salvini says, okay, well, let's go to elections, right? So um, in any case, whatever happened is going to be super messy because Italian politics is always messy. Um, Draghi had figured out a way to stabilize it a little bit, but it feels like we're going back to like the standard messiness of Italian politics, which in the middle of the conflict is actually not great at all. If Draghi were to go to elections, um, standing, so to say, alone in front of a coalition of parties, would he win? Right. So I talked to my son and uh, he thinks that uh, that's possible. However, remember that Draghi doesn't have a party. Like Draghi just showed up as like the white knight soldier and said, I'm going to save Italy from like the economic devastation of like um, COVID. I'm going to help stabilize the situation. He was much beloved, though I don't know what the latest polls are after, you know, well, you know, the inflation and all of that. I feel the one problem with Salvini that is pretty good at like reading the tea leaves and then a stirring um, kind of like uh, discontent is that uh, similar to probably what's going to happen in the US, you see the low approval uh, rating of uh, Biden. And then it's possible that like um, Draghi approvals were starting to go down. Um, in any case, he would need to establish his own party, which is not easy if you uh, make it just before the elections, but it's not impossible, right? He could do that. And if the approval was what it used to be, he could probably get like a third of Italians voting for him. And then, uh, um, and then that would work out because potentially then he could just find another party uh, to join his coalition and he would govern. But it would still take a quarter um, in the best, uh, uh, you know, of the situation if you actually go to vote. So it's kind of like a key quarter, right, uh, for many things. And in general, this instability, um, it's, it's not going to be great. So let's brace for some instability. However, there is still a sliver of chance that this afternoon something magical will happen to the president of the republic and they figure out a way to shuffle things around. But the next 24 hours will be very informative. I'll read the news and I'll uh, drop in and report if I see anything, uh, uh, you know, of substance. Thank you. Thank you, Luca. One last question. How many MPs in the Italian parliament will be interested in um, kind of committing political suicide themselves? And by political suicide, I, I mean literally not having a job anymore after the next election because the number of MP seats is going to be dropping significantly by about a third, right? So will there not be enough of a self-preservation uh, job security uh, kind of impulse among the uh, Italian members of parliament to um, you know, maybe sweep this one under the rug and just keep on trucking on? Well, you raised actually a very good point that I had totally forgotten, Domen. Like you're like the geopolitical encyclopedia. Uh, you've proven that many times in the past and once again. Um, yeah, you have a good point. That's an interesting dynamic. Um, hard to tell. Hard to tell. Understand that the third, a third of the par of the parliament aligns with those parties that uh, try to bring down the government. So either they're completely wrong or they're completely corrupted, where 
like Putin just wired a bunch of money and say, hey, you know, you're going to be off your job, but you're going to help me and then you can just move to a Caribbean island. That's also possible. Uh, uh, Salvini's party is definitely captured by Putin. That's known. And, and Fidesz is probably infiltrated. So you have a third of the party that probably like it's captured and so doesn't care or has to execute whatever whatever comes from the leadership. Um, and then you're right, you have a third that will be self-preservation, and then you have another third that is always the, the middle ground, right? And the question is, um, how much is this narrative of things are so expensive and they're not affordable anymore? And like, you know, Draghi was trying to do something about it, and of course they cut him short right there, right? So I don't know, it's gonna be super hard to tell. And uh, to me, this just came um, out of nowhere. So I'm very surprised and a little bit shocked. So we'll, we'll just need to watch and see. We discussed I... this with Bernard's puppy before that essentially the Cinque Stelle is uh, disproportionately hit by exactly that movement, meaning reducing the MPs by a third, if you think about it. Salvini can get through it because as you just quite rightly said, he can tell them, you know what, you'll have a better future if we rule and uh, therefore please just do it. Uh, but Cinque Stelle, they should actually generally be very concerned because they will be losing more seats from their otherwise elevated status and therefore be more at risk. Um, look at technical question. In Italy, it's not like in the UK, right? Ministers are, um, you can't be both an MP and a minister at the same time, right? Uh, sorry, tell me more about it. So in some countries, um, you are either a member of parliament or you're a minister. In other countries, if you're a minister, you first have to be a member of parliament. Italy, in Italy, ministers are not members of parliament, right? Yeah, Italy are not member of parliament. Now, the question is, would they be required to quit if they're member of parliament? I think yes. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure. That's a very interesting technical question. The way I would say is that um, it's, it's a requirement uh, not to be member of parliament. So I think they need to quit. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. But I'm not 100% sure, yeah. But they definitely do not have to be member of parliament, that's for sure. Exactly. So the point here is, like, Lega can say we are likely to win. Our guys vote for a new election, because if we win, even if you're not an MP after the election, we can still give you ministerial jobs, right? Yes, yes, for sure, for sure, yes. But another party, a party like... Movimento Cinque Stelle, which is not a party because they're no fun, um, they might not want to do that because they say, okay, if we, we're not going to be in a very good position, we're unlikely to be in government, we can't give you, we can't hand out jobs, right? Which is even more surprising because it's both Liga and Movimento Cinque Stelle to do this motion of disapproval of the government. Both of them uh, did that and made public statements about it. So, Go figure what they're thinking or how much money they got from, uh, you know, Moscow, right? Go figure. Yeah, I, I hear Magadan is lovely this time of year. So, um, Movimento Cinque Stelle kind of split in the previous Draghi vote uh, a few weeks ago. What's the situation now? Have they kind of gotten back together or...? Yeah, exactly. So now it's back to the, uh, the president desk. And the question is whether or not they, they will have a vote. Or whether, like, so I think from what I understand, uh, they said, that they told Draghi, look, you know, you don't have the numbers anymore. And then Draghi was just kind of like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to go to the president. And, and he's playing, Draghi's playing hardball, right? 
He's like, I'm done with this BS. I'll go back to the president. I quit. I did my job for Italy. Screw you guys. So whether there will need to be a formal vote or not, I don't know. It will be decided today. It will be decided today. So it's like, uh, it's a very key moment, you know. Thank you, Luca. Um, yeah, yeah, jump back you. up when, when and if you know anything more. Thank you Okay, thank you. Enjoy your holiday. Uh, right. Uh, sorry, guys, for the bit of a... Uh, Diversion, digression, but this is really important because Italy still kind of holds a lot of power here. And if Draghi goes, the next guy is probably going to be much worse for Ukraine. Um, let's go on to Brian and then to Omar. Brian. Hey, yeah, I had a quick question about uh, tanks and the use of tanks. Um, I'm not hearing as much, uh, you know, Russians getting their their tops popped off in recent days. And I'm wondering if that's because they've changed their tactics or B, are they just running out of supplies? Uh, I'm assuming the, the reality lies somewhere in the middle. And, um, uh, and Axel and Doman and a couple of folks in here can probably speak to that. Are they changing their tactics and using less tanks? Or are they just, uh, they just de- they're depleted and now they're trying to use tanks that we used to see in World War II? Um, or, or does the truth lie somewhere in the middle? Thanks, guys. It's very much something in the middle. So the the nature of the current fighting is that it's a long-range artillery slugging match. In that kind of slugging match, you don't have the opportunities for the kind of short-range light infantry ambush tactics that Ukraine was using so skillfully earlier in the war. Um, those are the kinds of attacks that give you those really satisfying brew-up moments. Um that bad. Russia is certainly running low-ish uh, on first-rate tanks, so you know, we should really expect that to be a problem for them for a while. So, Portland, would you say overall that javelins are playing less of a role, or yeah, uh, that's sure they're playing less of a role right now, but that's not a reflection of what their role is going to be as Ukraine goes back on the offense. So, Portland, a lot of this also has to do with just how much better defined the front lines are, right? Early on in the war, the, there was more movement, the front lines were more fuzzy, broader, wider, however you might, might, might want to put it, deeper. Um, and there were just more small Ukrainian units with a bunch of endlaws and javelins in the same space as the Russian tanks. And now the Russian tanks are on one side of the front and the Ukrainians with the javelins are on the other side of the front, right? And there simply isn't that capacity to uh, uh, to, to take them out, I reckon. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. That's, that's it in a nutshell. The opportunities aren't there right now. The opportunities will be coming back. Exactly, exactly. Um, there's also reports of two... Uh, Russian Suhoi ground attack aircraft being taken out by uh, Zaporizhian air defenses this morning, uh, which is good. Um, and uh, there's quite a lot of tanks actually listed on the Russian casualty list today, the one that's issued by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. 18 new tanks added. I'm not sure how many of these are um, from previous days, kind of a backlog clearing, but you know, maybe uh, Ukrainian artillery, long range artillery took out the tank column somewhere and we didn't even hear of it. Um, anyway, let's go on to Omar and then to mostly Cossack K9. Omar. Uh, my question to Portland. So uh, Canada gave 
uh, Excalibur to the Ukraine. Um, what would you use them for uh, instead of Heimers? Because I, I believe they have the same range. Um, the second thing uh, was, you know, before the war, everybody expected it to be a, a guerrilla war and partisan war and not much conventional. And it turned out to be the exact opposite. We're seeing much more. I mean, it is a, the most conventional war we ever saw in a long time. Uh, and there is some partisan activity, but not as much as we thought. So what's your thoughts you know, on, on that? Okay, so... Um... Your first question was um, regarding the effective range of Excalibur. Um, no, they don't have really the same effective range. Uh, Excalibur, under ideal conditions from an extremely long-barreled gun, is good to about 54 kilometers. Um, the M31A1 is good under... It, it's good to 85 kilometers under the worst imaginable operating conditions. Actually, I've, in practice, I've seen them reach up to 95 kilometers. So the, the main thing that you're going to use Excalibur for is killing enemy artillery. That's, that's the counter-battery work that we've been talking about. Um, as for your second question, yeah, that surprised me as well. Um, but this is more of a reflection of the fact that um, that there was never any question in my mind about whether the Ukrainians would fight. The question was always what the nature and geometry of that fight was going to be. And um, I didn't expect Ukraine to be able to hold uh, hold territory and grind the Russian army down quite like they have been doing. Um you know, I think that that speaks well to how capable the Ukrainian military actually is. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Thanks, Portland. Um, actually, overnight, we saw a video come out that uh, had some counter-battery fire, uh, Ukrainians destroying a few Uraguns that were uh, shooting in Nikolaev. So that's, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that. You know, those Uraguns were really a pain now. Um, mostly Cossack K9. Um, yeah, a question for um, for uh, Portland. Um, first of all, I, I just think your your explanations for lay people about all the, the military picture is just amazing. So thank you for that. But um, yeah, I'm wondering about the support that NATO is providing in terms of um, intelligence and strategy. I know there's always uh, air assets up like Forte providing uh, like real time information to the Ukrainian command but I'm wondering how uh, how much if it took and how does it work in terms of um, shaping the kind of overall strategy um, I know they, they might say that this is a good target to go for now and you might want to do it this way but are there would you expect there to be NATO people embedded with the Ukrainian command, or how does it work? So, as much as I can tell you is that there is a command center where all of these assets are being managed, and there are Ukrainian officers in that command center. That is as much as I know, and if I knew more, I wouldn't tell. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do have a, a second question, if if that's okay. Um, uh, go ahead. So, um, it seems as though so far in the war that. Um, kind of missile technology, missile 
missiles and artillery have basically shaped the kind of way that the the war is gone and and so far the uh, the air forces of both um both combatant sides haven't really been in evidence as much as people expected um it is is that a surprise to the way in which um nato would have expected the war to go um and how quickly do you see um ukrainian air force really um using all its force now that more russian air defense is taken up so it's a surprise but not a huge surprise um nato has always known that um the the air picture um really gives us the whip hand like I'm, we're just much better at it than the russians are this is why russian counter air doctrine um is is always to have your pilots fighting inside their own integrated air defense bubble um i thought they'd do better than this i didn't think they'd do great but i thought they'd do better than this so it's it is a surprise but it's not a total surprise and thank you very much and we've certainly seen um the ukrainian air force being a lot more active in the last few weeks right ever since the hymers came in the ukrainian air force has also stepped up and there's two there's two parts to this one is it seems that ukraine does have some improvements to their own air defenses um as evidenced by the proportion of cruise missiles that they're now taking down compared to previously right previously they might be taking down one out of eight. And recently we've heard some stuff like, you know, they took down six out of eight or six out of seven even of a salvo. That probably means that the air defenses are better, right? Um, either they're just way more skilled, but it can't just be way more skilled. There has to be some sort of technological improvement there as well. And that should apply against Russian aircraft as well. Secondly, um, Ukrainians have been, as, as mostly Cossack K-9 noted, destroying a whole lot of Russian air defenses. At least three S-300 and S-400 systems between the two sets have been taken out by, uh, by Ukrainians over the past week, um, possibly more. God knows how many of the other air defense assets, God knows how many of the other, um, let's say, how many, uh, are, are they munitions for air defense assets, missiles for air defense assets, Portland? I don't know what the right terminology is, but you know what I mean, right? Munition is, is a generic term. Any any expendable um, ammunition of any kind is a munition. Okay, um, so I can just use munition for everything and not sound stupid? Yeah, yeah. That's perfectly acceptable. Excellent, excellent. So, um, they, uh, I found even better word, I think. Ukrainians have been destroying God knows how many consumables for air defense assets on top of the uh, on top of the launchers as well, right? A lot of those um, uh, a lot of those um, uh, launchers were probably destroyed, but a whole lot of the expendables, a whole lot of the consumables were destroyed in the process of blowing up the ammo dumps as well, because as we know, Russians just put everything in one big pile. Um, sorry, not one big pile, one big checkerboard arrangement, because that that keeps it perfectly safe and. You know, it's all, it's all good this way. Definitely can't. Uh, uh, nothing else can explode if one of the squares in the checkerboard starts uh, cooking off. Um, 
so I think that's uh, that's pretty important, right? That that's that's pretty notable, and that's why we've seen more uh, Ukrainian air force operations. Some of the ammo dumps that went out, some of the command posts weren't even HIMARS. Some of them were actually uh, Ukrainian uh, um, were were actually Ukrainian air force airstrikes, and that's really good. So more of that will be needed, but that's really good. Just over a week ago. We we actually we I was trying to analyze a strike that was I think about a hundred miles inside Russia, and there really wasn't a lot to go on. Um, but some enterprising chap got a picture of a parachute which he found on the ground near the site of the strike, and it turned out to be um, uh, it, it turned out to be a five hundred kilo bomb dropped by an Su twenty five that with Russian air defenses as degraded as they are, was able to follow the nap of the earth, use terrain masking, slip between uh, Russian air defense positions, hit a target 100 miles inside Russia, and then run like hell for friendly territory. So the Russian Air Force is still very much in business. It's, uh, It's... just waiting for circumstances to be shaped to its own liking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we just got some uh, news of additional uh, Russian cruise missile strikes on Western Ukraine, specifically apparently in Lviv and Vinitsa in Western Ukraine. Well, uh, Vinitsa, I guess, like central Western, but yeah. Um, it's uh, uh, possibly another attempt by Russians to simply terrorize people in Western Ukraine, or possibly uh, it might also be uh, it might also be striking at rail connections in that area as well. Apparently in Cherkasy Oblast as well. Uh, I think there were Black Sea and Sea of Azov launched. Uh, that, that is to say, uh, um, launched from launched from ships there, uh, of launched from Russian ships there, uh, possibly submarines as well. I'm not sure, um, but it seems as though oh god, it's there's reports, unconfirmed reports that the Lviv hospital has been hit, or a hospital in Lviv has been hit as well, and um, um, that's uh, that's Russians for you, right? Hitting hospitals. Uh, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of miles from front lines, because that's what Russians do, and that's what Russians always do. I wish I was surprised, but Russians gonna rush. Goodness, um, yeah, that's we 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 always hear the same things, don't we? It's uh, Russians launch cruise missiles, hit another school, another hospital, another another apartment building. Morning, Auntie. Go ahead. Morning. Uh, and good morning to you as well, Portland, or, or I guess it's, uh, is it really late in the evening? It's morning. Oh. Early, early morning. Okay. One Okay. So uh, we uh, we had a discussion uh, yesterday about uh, about Ukrainian Tochka use and, uh, and the Russian Tochkas, and uh, uh, I believe there was some detail that we could still expand on, so... Uh, where are you at with uh, with Russian Tochkas? Do do they uh, are they able to uh, deploy different variants of of this cruise missile, or is it just uh, just uh, like a single single type? Portland, my check. I heard you fine, Antti. I think um, Portland might be away from his phone for a second. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's just clarify um, things a little bit. Um, in Tochkas are uh, 
let's say, short to medium range ballistic missiles with a range of about 100, 120 kilometers. Uh, quite inaccurate. Um, the circular error probable is on the order of 100, 150 meters at 100 kilometers, um, which means that only half of your missiles are going to strike within 100, 150 meters of your intended target. Um, they go around on a big truck. There's one big missile per truck, and they deliver, I believe, about 2,000 pounds of explosives. So there's quite a quite a big, uh, quite a large payload, quite a large warhead. Now, for the past decade, Russia has claimed that they don't have any Tochkas and uh, has been using Tochkas extensively in false flag attacks on cities in occupied territories um, to then claim that Ukrainians were the ones shelling those cities. Uh, they have continued that through this wholesale invasion of Ukraine. Um, and if you remember the attack on the railway station in Kramatorsk, where 59 people died while trying to evacuate and hundreds more were injured, that was conducted by a Tochka strike. Russians, again, claimed that it couldn't possibly have been them because they don't have any such, uh, any such missiles. In the past week, there were three major sightings of Tochkas in Russian use. One was a Russian propagandist channel uh, showing the launch of one uh, in Zaporizhia Oblast. Now, the launcher had an IZ on it, so a Z for American, uh, and a Russian flag flying on it. Uh, but that was taken down within minutes. Luckily, somebody managed to scrape it before that. Then we saw a convoy of about 10-ish Tochka launchers uh, driving furiously through the streets of Luhansk about four days ago. And two days ago, the video emerged of um, a train full of Tochka launchers uh, going through Tula. Tula is uh, just south of Moscow. It's a city maybe 100 kilometers south of Moscow, give or take. doesn't really matter, you know, well within Russia. So Russians have finally, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily admitted to it, but finally there's, you know, more extensive and very detailed evidence of Russians actually being in possession of, of these Tochka launchers. Um, we always knew that there were false flag attacks, but um, now there's additional video evidence to back that up. Portland, are you back? I am. Excellent. Auntie, do you want to repeat your question to Portland about Tochka? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Portland, are you aware of... Uh different types of uh, Tochkas employed by the Russians, or are they all all of one singular type? Um, so there were two types of Tochka manufactured, one with a unitary warhead and one with a fairly sloppy uh, cluster munition warhead. Unfortunately, with how opaque the Russian budget is, I don't know how many of them they actually still have in the service. Um, but it's it's not a, a insignificant number. You know, you, you're talking, they probably have high dozens to low hundreds. And is there, could you li- talk a little about uh, what uh, what difference is? I mean, obviously the cluster ammunition adds, adds a different variable, but could you talk a little about uh, if there are differences in, in range and in accuracy and uh, so forth? Not really. I mean, they're identical missile bodies, and the um, the cluster munition dispenser was sized uh, basically so they didn't have to develop a separate guidance package. So there's actually room in there to fit several dozen more submunitions, and they just didn't because they didn't want to develop separate guidance packages for each variant. Um, but you know, there, there's not really that much difference between them, except that, you know, 
the unitary warhead is supposed to be good for infrastructure, the cluster munitions is for troop concentrations and being a general dickhead. And uh, have we seen uh, any evidence as to which type or uh, they have utilized so far or have they yeah. used both? Not really. The problem for the most part with Russian use of Tochka is that they are always deployed in a deliberately deceptive manner. Because, you know, as Doman pointed out, they swear blind that they don't have any Tochka. Well, you know, I've got fucking eyes and I can see that you clearly have a Tochka, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the the very nature of their utilization makes them rather hard to track. Um And beyond that, you know, when you're looking at a submunition incident, um, you really have to be realistic about what you can strongly assert about that attack, you know? They all pretty uh, much look the same. Right. So, for instance, uh, the strike on the uh, railroad station, uh, that was presumably we don't have... Uh, th- there isn't simply enough uh, information or data available for, for that either to uh, deduce whether or not it was the uh, one one warhead or, or the other. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, if you're, you you can tell for sure if you're looking at was this a unitary warhead, because that's an individual very big bang, uh, or was this a cluster munition warhead. What I'm saying here is, is that, like, they use the same 30-0-13 uh, dual-purpose uh, cluster munition in everything from 152mm artillery shells to to Tochka, right? So when you're right. looking at cluster munitions, you have to be realistic about asserting, oh, this was artillery, this was grad, this was Tochka. Right, because you can't, you genuinely, you can't tell unless you have lots of video and you're getting a good panoramic view and you can see how those munitions arrive, you can't tell the difference. And anybody that pretends that they can is lying. Right. And when when did they start manufacturing uh, this missile? Tochka, I think it's the uh, early 80s weapon. Right. This so... is SCUD version too. Yeah, more or less. So the oldest ones they might might have in storage would be about 40 years old. Yeah, about that. So given given that we know that the Russians don't really care how old munitions they use generally, uh, uh, do you think that we will be able to uh, somehow uh, be able to deduce uh, if if there is some is there if there's some kind of uh, increased rate of uh, failure or uh, Uh, some some kind of failure because I, I I've seen so many I mean I've heard so many times that I I think uh, you or at least someone else has mentioned on this space that usually uh, missiles in in storage are only good for about ten years so if we're talking about them using forty year old uh, munitions it, it, there's obviously some increased risk of uh, all sorts of uh, things going bonkers yes um you're right about all of that and and wise to bring it up the thing is is that the nature of the likely failure modes for these sorts of weapons are all early launch failures it's either failure to launch or a failure shortly after launch 
And because those will be falling in Russian-occupied territory, it is highly likely that we won't necessarily know about it. Right. And it's, uh, it's the same sort of failure that we saw with their uh, anti-air systems, the gyroscope failure. Is that possible also? That, but though, Or is, it, uh, is the structure and the technical aspects so different that uh, that's so, not likely to happen? No, no, that's, that's actually highly likely. Um, so your three main points of failure are going to be your gyros, your solid rocket motor itself, or your rocket nozzle. Um, so the rocket nozzle has to be, you know, maintained and shaped in a very precise geometry to promote, um, the best possible burn rate and to, uh, not have the missile constantly flying off the course. Um, but that thing's sticking basically out of the back of the rocket. And that's the thing that's likely to get banged around the most. Um, the gyros are, you know, inherently relatively fragile uh, pieces of machinery. They are prone to failing if they're not properly maintained. Um, and the, the solid rocket motor itself, if it sits in storage for long enough and is then transported with insufficient care, can develop cracks. And when the cracks develop, then you get um, all sorts of interesting problems with uh, rocket motors uh, detonating spontaneously um, in in hilarious ways. So before I go on to more questions, uh, Domen, are there uh, many other hands up? There, there's a there's a couple. Um, let's go to let's go to Brian and Mikolai, and and we can we can swing back to you, Auntie, with more technical yeah. stuff. I really want to Thank hear you. about it. Thank you I so much, just, Portland. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited about this. I just want to make a couple of uh, announcements. It is currently. Well, you know what time it is. You're looking at your phone. But in an hour and a half, that is noon Central European time, 6 a.m. Eastern time, uh, we will have a representative, or I believe the vice president of the French uh, division of the Ukrainian World Congress with us. Um, that he's, uh, uh, no, he's joining us on Bastille Day uh, to talk about what the Ukrainian World Congress has been doing to Know, help Ukraine and actually also co- cooperating with their charity, cooperating with Maria Aid, uh, in in part in order to deliver those ten Fury drones uh, that are now being used by Ukrainian troops to overfly uh, Russian front lines. Uh, so they're joining us in an hour and a half. Then at noon Eastern, six PM Central European time, seven PM Kiev, we'll be joined by Irina Shev. Irina is a Ukrainian-born journalist uh, who has lived and worked in Portugal for a while now. Um, And she's been reporting from Ukraine, uh, from all over Ukraine, anywhere from Kiev to Odessa, all the way to um, very close to the front lines in eastern Ukraine, uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. She'll be joining us uh, for an hour to talk about her experiences in Ukraine over the past four and a half months. Uh, Just as she will be wrapping up with her at 8 p.m. Kiev, that is 7 p.m. Central European time, 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll be joined uh, by our old friend Bryce uh, from Australia, Bryce Wilson, uh, the journalist who's now based in Kramatorsk and previously did a documentary on the Azov Regiment, uh, as well as his partner, Guillaume Ptak. Um, so they're going to be joining us at 8 p.m. KF right after the Irina. So um, we're going to go from one journalist to two other journalists straight 
uh, straight after that. And then at 7 p.m. Eastern, 1 a.m. Central European time, 2 a.m. Kiev, we're going to be joined by at War in the Future, a retired Major General of the Australian Army, Mick Ryan, uh, to talk about you know, more uh, strategic long-term aspects or medium-term aspects of the war in Ukraine and how the Ukrainians uh, are fighting off um, the Russian invasion and how they're trying to prevent as much of the Russian genocide of the Ukrainian people as possible. So it's a full slate today. Uh, the first one is in an, in one and a half hours from now, uh, Volodymyr Kubutyak, uh, the vice president of, uh, the, Fre- of, of, the, of the French uh, component of the Ukrainian World Congress. Uh, so that's in an hour and a half's time. Uh, let's go on to, thank you for listening to the announcements. Uh, let's go to Brian. Brian, go ahead. Yeah, incredible stuff. And one of the things that really draws me to this space is the fact that it's so comprehensive. The fact that you guys uh, and gals uh, bring so many experts to the, to the forefront and uh, illuminate. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're talking about everything on a macro level, but a lot of these ex- experts can just break it down uh, so succinctly. And it's uh, it, it's... It's a three-credit course every time you chime in here. So my, my question was uh, kind of granular um, and something I brought up, maybe on, not on this space, but maybe on another one, as it relates to small arms uh, munitions. Uh, I, I know a lot of, uh, it seems a lot of the forces fighting for Ukraine do prefer the, the UK-74 munition, um, which to my knowledge is not, a NATO round, right? But I'm wondering, you know, is Ukraine transitioning over to a NATO style round or, you know, is the AK-47 and AK-74 going to be the preferred avenue because they're more familiar with it and it's uh, it's a weapon that is very reliable? I'm just curious. I know there's a lot of different weapon systems in play as it relates to small arms, but I was just wondering if anyone had a kind of a holistic uh, ans- answer on that or, or a take on that. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Portland, do you want to talk about this? Uh, sure. Um, so the thing about the AK-74 and its uh, 5.45 by 39 round is that the ra- the weapons are available in really very large numbers. The ammunition is relatively plentiful, although, you know, honestly, there's never that there's no such thing as having enough ammunition in war. That's, you know, that's that's not a concept that, you know, you you want to invest any time in. Um, So, you know, if we were switching them to a NATO standard weapon, that's something that you really want to do during peacetime. Because it's extremely time-consuming. You have to train your soldiers on an entirely new manual of arms. You have to replace all of your armorers' tools. You have to completely retrain retrain all of your armorers. Um, I mean, the, the amount of work involved is just, you know, it's, it's, it's just immense. Um, so it makes sense to me right now that they're trying to keep their, their best units all equipped with the the newer 5.45 round and their territorial defense units are mostly 
running older AK-47 variants using the 7.62 by 39 RAM. Thank you, Portland. Uh, uh Hi, everyone. Uh, I have a question. Two days ago, I read that uh, Spain decided, or German allowed to Spain to uh, send 10 uh, tanks, Leopard 2A4, and I didn't hear anything that any other country sent this type of tank. So I was wondering, uh, is that, that any sense to send uh, this kind of weapon, uh, you know, in a homeopathic uh, quantities uh, to Ukraine, especially with, you know, completely different uh, caliber of the cannon and all that stuff. There isn't any sense to do, to do something something like this, because, you know, so, if that would be 10, 10, 10 aviators, it, it will be, you know, uh, just, well, it would be look nice on the, you know, victory parade, <laughs> nothing else. Thanks. Um, so, Miko, I can I can take this because it's a little bit more uh, complicated what's going on. So, it's uh, not that Spain is sending them. It's not that Germany agreed to this to Spain sending them. It is that the Spanish Minister of Defense said that the Ministry of Defense would probably want to do this, but it hasn't even passed through the Spanish government yet, and there definitely hasn't been any request for a re-export permit given to the Germans for the Germans to then decide whether there should be a, uh, um, whether uh, they should allow the re-export of these. So, um, no, it's not a situation where, where this is actually happening already. This is a situation where somebody is wanting for something to happen, but it still needs to be approved by, you know, at least two bodies, the Spanish government and then, uh, um, and, and then the German government uh, re-export the relevant ones for, for re-export, uh, that is to say the Minister of the Economy and the Chancellor. So it's, it's, nowhere, it's nowhere near being there yet. Now, even if this were to happen, you're quite right, 10 Leopard 2s, maybe not the most useful thing in the world because it's only 10 of them. Mikoa, you have a hot mic. Um, but it's not about the 10 that the Spanish would be sending anyway. It's about finally moving past this, um, the, the, this blockage that the Germans have instituted by claiming that is to say the 